Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is a podcast in collaboration with Lacuna magazine, in-depth interviews with some of the world's most interesting environmental thinkers, going behind the headlines, taking the time to understand why we think about the environment in the ways that we do, where that might be taking us, and how to see it differently. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking with Betsy Hartman, Professor Emerita of Development Studies at Hampshire College in the US, and author of The America Syndrome, Apocalypse, War and Our Call to Greatness, and also the feminist classic, Reproductive Rights and Wrongs. One of the arguments um, that needs to be used with liberal environmentalists or even left environmentalists is if you embrace these Malthusian ideas in a way it makes a bridge to the far right. The far right would like nothing better than you to be using these Malthusian ideas and it's a way for them, you know, kind of normalizes their ideas. There's just too many people. It's an argument trotted out time and again to explain everything from climate change to overconsumption, from pandemics to vanishing biodiversity. And it's an argument given widespread legitimacy. At the end of last year, Prince William spoke of how Africa's wildlife was endangered because of the continent's growing population. David Attenborough regularly highlights the dangers and is patron of Population Matters, a charity that, in their own words, campaigns to achieve a sustainable human population. Other patrons include Chris Packham, Jane Goodall and James Lovelock. So whilst other solutions to climate change remain controversial, Blaming overpopulation is mainstream, completely acceptable on both the right and left. Betsy Hartman has spent much of her career arguing against this position. Not only is it a fallacy, she says, it is a deeply dangerous one. It is racist, it coerces women's reproductive rights and it plays into the hands of the far right. Over a long, distinguished career, she has worked at the intersections of population, migration, environment and security looking at what arguments around overpopulation obscure and how they expose our prejudices. The historic critique of overpopulation can be traced back to Reverend Thomas Malthus, a curate at Oakwood Church in South London at the end of the 18th century. Many of his congregation were living in total poverty, getting by on scraps their children stunted from hunger and disease. And yet when he studied the church records, he saw that the number of baptisms still well outstripped the number of funerals. With horror, He envisaged the human race growing exponentially, the poor doomed to wallow in their own filth because of their fertility. Only hunger, poverty, disease and war keep human populations in check, he wrote, and thus were, presumably, to be welcomed. In his 1798, an essay on the principle of population, he argued that rather than poverty being the fault of institutions, it was rooted in these laws of nature and passions of mankind. He was extremely influential, and despite his many dire predictions not having come to pass, he continues to be extremely influential to this day. I began by asking Betsy to tell me more about him. Well, many books have been uh, written about Malthus, so I focus mainly on his views on population and his great law on principle of population, which was that 
food supplies grow in a linear manner and human population grows exponentially. So there's this inevitable race between humans and plants and animals that leads to scarcity. And only things like famine, starvation, war, um, and a few so-called positive checks can keep the human race from dying out. And it performed an ideological role that this was just inevitable. It was going to happen. And if poor people procreate so much, they in a way are creating their own poverty. So it was kind of a focus on poor people. It wasn't that everyone's procreating too much. It was specifically targeted at a certain demographic. The upper classes of Europe had more means at their disposal to have smaller families, right? And there were also these things called positive checks, which was actually venereal disease was one of those that would keep the number of children down. Because the poor people were poor, this was an explanation of poverty and birth rates tended to be higher, I suppose. But it was a generalization for all humanity and it continues to be used, I mean, interestingly, as a generalization for all humanity, right? And because Malthus started life as a priest, he had this church, this was his first exposure to these sorts of people, I suppose. Is is there this kind of religious overtone to it as well, that that the wars or the famines or even the venereal disease are something that humanity deserves? Well, not so much. Interestingly, he became a clergyman partly just to make money, you know, like as a job. Yes, I'm not sure he was that motivated that way. And he came from a fairly liberal family. I mean, his father was very cosmopolitan in terms of ideas, you know. In a way, He deviated. It wasn't so much religious as kind of an observation. He was very mathematically inclined to, I think, and he was keeping the parish records and seeing that more people were being born than dying. And he saw this as a problem, right, out of balance. So he would also see that many people in his parish were poor and having many children. And then he somehow in his mind connected those two things, as opposed to, you know, other thinkers of the time who had a more liberal and um, forward-looking attitude. And then Malthus has come to symbolize, you say in your book, The America Syndrome, that in some ways, maybe he couldn't have foreseen some of the things that that were going to prove his theories, as, as you argue, kind of fundamentally false. He perhaps couldn't have seen the advances in food technology that would have come along. He perhaps couldn't have understood that population doesn't expand exponentially, even catastrophes and wars aside. But Malthus has now come to stand in for more than the person, right? Malthusian ideas have come to be bigger than Malthus. Oh, absolutely. And again, there are many biographies out now about Malthus who complicate the man and say, oh, he wasn't so just one-sided as all this. But certainly his mathematical law became enshrined in the ideology of the time and continuing into now. And also, uh, Larry Lohman's done interesting work about how his scarce stories, in a way, accompanying his kind of mathematical logic, if you if you do read him, were kind of scarce stories about barbarians coming toward Europe. And, you know, there's racialized depictions of people in other countries, poor people in other countries, colonial subjects. So there was that kind of scare story going alongside the mathematics. And I think that's one of his legacies that we today see still that kind of primitive mathematical equation used to foresee scarcity. On the other hand, along with it comes these scarce stories. And in 
in our case, more visual imagery too of the desperate hordes, right? So I think that's one of his legacies too that um, really needs to be recognized. Mm. I think that's, you know, that's why I kind of really wanted to talk to you today because this idea of overpopulation feels so pervasive in environmental discussion. And across the board, there's, like you say, there's the perception of the hordes and maybe this quite right-wing messaging. When you, when you talk about the hordes, I think of the, the posters that were used during the Brexit campaign here in this sense of all these people turning up in Britain and this idea of creating borders. But it's, overpopulation is also this really pervasive idea maybe not on the left but in environmental circles and, and just very commonplace you know you hear it in David Attenborough Prince William spoke out about overpopulation a couple of weeks ago being a critical reason for the environmental climate crises you know I feel like we're all raised from a very early age to know that that is the problem there's too many people the earth can't handle us oh absolutely um here in the United States we did a study of textbooks in environmental studies and geography classes on uh, population. And they've done one similar study in India as well. And just the representations in the text and actually misinformation um, in the text about population and teaching students to be scared of overpopulation and to identify it in uh, very racialized terms, usually, if you look at the pictures that accompany. So, yeah, you grow up with this. It's, in your, it's part of the stock of the culture in many Western countries, but also in places like India as well. And it's hard to get people out of that space, but I have found through, you know, decades of teaching on this stuff and writing about it, that when people do successfully start to challenge these ideas, they feel tremendously liberated. It's just a real opening because it also opens new solidarities when you're not viewing those people over there, those hordes over there as the danger and the problem. So, and perhaps you might even be able to feel solidarity with those people, if not empathy. So it's um, tremendously liberating. And I think, you know, you can get people past that. But another thing that's really been missing, I think, in, in education is demographic literacy. So that, you know, the idea is that population expands exponentially. It's not true, you know, certainly no longer true. And um, yet that's put in textbooks for school children. So people don't understand that birth rates are coming down around the world. Many people don't even know this. And it's not their fault. They're not taught it. It's um, what they read in the newspaper um, perhaps is, you know, more alarmist. And so to get people past it, I mean... I suppose we can talk about that later, but there are many ways into critiquing this ideology, but it's so important. And, and I would say, too, in the U.S., it's so powerful that it also affected the left, too. Yeah, because, because it sort of transcends political divides and geographical divides, it almost seems, there's not much that seems to transcend these divides. It almost seems to be taken as fact. And, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely want to come on and kind of unpick some of that and talk about why overpopulation is not this reason to be scared of the future. But I'd like to talk first just about your way into this. You write in the book about going to Bangladesh in the early 70s and that starting to open your eyes to see why it's more about imbalances of power than, than overpopulation. Do you, want to, do you want to talk about that a bit in your experiences in Bangladesh? I went to India twice, once in high school, once in college for a year. And then after graduating from university, I went to Bangladesh and um, my husband and I lived in a village in northern Bangladesh for nine months. And there we saw women were having lots of children or 
couples were having lots of children. And one of the main reasons was that so many children were dying, either in birth or in childhood, um, early childhood, like infant and child mortality was tremendously high. And so people told us we have to have so many children in order that a few will survive. Also, there was no social security net. These people were very poor, so they had to depend on their children, especially sons in their old age. So they also had to have a certain number of children to ensure that they would have a son or two to take care of them in their old age. So, And then you have the phenomena of lots of international donors coming into Bangladesh. It's a new country. It's desperately needy. And you have, I mean, the donors are a mixed bag. Some are better than others. But you had a real push from the U.S. Agency for International Development, the World Bank, the United Nations Population Fund at that time came in and really identified uh, one of Bangladesh's main development problems as uh, birth rates, high birth rates. They are really pushing the government to embark on a, a population control campaign. So... Meantime, there isn't decent family planning around for women to access. And in my own experience in the village, many women came to me asking why I didn't have children. And I said, uh, because I use birth control. And they said, please get me some. Because people really wanted to space their children. And it wasn't necessarily that husbands were opposed either. Many men thought, too, it would be a good idea to space children and perhaps have fewer of them. So there was a receptivity to the idea of birth control you know, given in a respectful way as part of reproductive health care. I went to the local family planning office in the nearest town and asked um, them to come out to the village because women were asking me for pills and things. So they came out and they treated the women really badly. You know, it was just such a, a miss. Here was an opportunity for people to have access to birth control and uh, these women really blew it. So Next thing you know, there was this push to sterilize people. And so there was, a, and many Bangladeshi health activists working on this and working with us, and it was a kind of international solidarity campaign. And it was somewhat successful in that some of the worst ex excesses that had happened in India in mass sterilization campaign that did not happen in Bangladesh, but it was still a pretty bad campaign. And at one point, food aid was withheld from poor women unless they agreed to be sterilized in an, in an area that had been subject to a flood. So I guess Bangladesh taught me two things. I mean, one, I've always been, to make perfectly clear, I've always been in great support of people's access to birth control and abortion services. So I saw that that would be possible, but it needed to be within the context of a functioning primary health care system, that the two go together, right? And that that's what needed to happen. This co-population control ideology and practice as really promoted um, by Western um, interests at that time in, in the 70s and 80s was really um, working at odds with providing good quality care. So that's how I came to the issue, and, and the issue became my life, I should say. I just had no idea that this was happening in Bangladesh, and that you also write about it happening in the U.S. until the 70s, in Mexico, in Peru, in India, that it's been this form of coercive population control. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's barbaric, isn't it? Uh, well, one thing I should say is I'm not opposed to sterilization per se. If it's done safely, many people might choose that method. It's forced sterilization or sterilization 
might not mean somebody strapping you down, you know, but it can mean also that incentives and disincentives are used to force people to be sterilized. So that, again, food aid might be withheld or you get an incentive payment. The sterilization program in Bangladesh, the U.S. government was helping to provide compensation payments for when people got sterilized. And they wouldn't call them incentives, but people got, you know, money for transportation or a free sari for surgery and things like that as an inducement. But they're not being induced, just go to the family planning clinic. It's sterilization that is wanted. That is the outcome that's wanted. And I would say that Forced sterilization is perhaps the the worst thing. We saw forced sterilization during the eugenics era in the United States and in other European countries, and we still see it today in many places or amongst the Roma uh, were subject to forced sterilization in, in many countries. So we still see that, but I think we also need to keep our minds focused on other forms of pressure brought to bear on people in terms of population programs. So it might not be sterilization per se, but there might be incentives or pressure to, for example, to have one of these contraceptive implants because they're viewed as more effective in the long run and under the control of the provider, not under the control of the woman themselves. When Norplant, for example, one of these implants was first unleashed on the world, massive campaign in Indonesia in order to bring birth rates down, not enough people were trained to take the implants out if people had problems. And again, really no follow-up or screening does it make sense to use such an implant, you know, medically? So just kind of lack of respect and for bodily integrity. Mm-hmm. That's the point, isn't it? That it's taking away people's choice. And then you go on to talk about China as well. And the, the most famous form of population control is the one child policy that was enacted in China, which was supported by the UN and was seen as almost quite visionary at the time and it's only later that people have now seen it as a really severe abuse of human rights. For those of us who were opposed to that policy from the very beginning, it was very painful to watch how little criticism there was from the international family planning establishment. There was some but not much. And ironically, this allowed the right-wing anti-abortion folks or not necessarily always right-wing, but the anti-abortion movement to seize on the issue. They tried to seize the moral high ground on it. So it was a real mistake politically also, just aside from ethical issues, for the international population and family planning establishments not to criticize the Chinese government. And again, there wasn't enough of an outcry on the left. And I would say really one of the major human rights abuses of the late 20th century. And people were, oh, there's just too many Chinese over there. It'll be good for climate change, you know. (laughs) And the Chinese government even claimed that they were helping out on climate change by averting births. And that's the thing, isn't it? Although these sort of overpopulation arguments are often used to justify preserving resources or preventing climate change or whatever it is, when you look at it up close, when you see well, what actually does criticising population mean, what it means forcing women to get sterilised or it means forcing families to hide the daughters that they have or give them away, that's what people are arguing for in practice when they say that there's too many people on the planet. 
Yes, and they may not realize that. You know, I had the good fortune of teaching with a scholar on China named Kay Johnson, who did a lot of work on the one-child policy and actually, you know, went to villages and spoke to people, went to orphanages and saw the real crimes being committed against people. And it was very moving. And, you know, that started to reach the media later, but it was almost too late. Unfortunately, it wasn't too late, but so many abuses had already taken place. So is that, is that your sense that when people are talking about overpopulation, there's generally this idea that it's a certain sort of person, it's people in the global south, it's those people over there, or it's people that are living in poorer parts of America, black parts of America, those people are the problem? Well, I think that certainly has been true historically, and it's still true to some extent. But there's also a move afoot in certain privileged white circles anyway. There's this idea that we're the problem, we're having babies, and our babies consume more because we're richer, and therefore we should have fewer children or only one child or no children at all. So there's a kind of ironic twist on this that, again, which I find very strange. First of all, you can raise your children not to be super polluters. <laughs> Second of all, that, you know, you're going to solve this problem and that mothers and children are somehow responsible for these problems like carbon emissions, you know, and the fossil fuel industry, the military, somehow that women curtailing their reproduction and controlling their reproduction is going to change the, the course that is a good political strategy on climate change or whatever. And I think what one problem I have with it is, or many problems I have with it, but one is that it obscures who are the real targets on most of these programs, right? So it's like, oh, you know, kind of, oh, I'm going to be a good citizen too and not have so many children, you know, or it kind of obscures the racialized and uh, targeting of poor women still, um, both within the United States and, and, and overseas. So that's one irony. And, that, and then there's another whole group who argues that climate change is spells such doom and, and creates so much anxiety that they're not sure they want to bring children in to this world, crazy apocalyptic world. And so there's groups that meet consciousness raising about this kind of reproductive anxiety. And so it's not directly linked to population control, but again, it kind of situates reproduction and women and babies at the center of a problem or thinking that I'm so anxious I can't have a child as opposed to I'm so anxious things are so bad I really better join a climate group and do something about carbon emissions um, campaign in the next election or take action it's kind of a personalization which may be born out of a real anxiety I understand that I mean not that I don't feel anxious in these times as well but I, but also that that rhetoric is found as much in in climate groups as anywhere else. I've spent a lot of my 20s in environmental activist circles and, and that agonising about whether to have children or not is across the board there. I've got two young kids now, three and one, and it was definitely part of my consideration and part of mine and my partner's consideration around having kids is, is exactly these issues. And I see people really suffering with these decisions. You know, people that really want children, really feeling deeply personally responsible and unable to have children for exactly those two reasons that you've said because of the, the idea that having a child is the worst thing you can possibly do for your carbon footprint um, and also these apocalyptic Hollywood futures that we've all that we've all got going around in our heads. 
Right, right. It is a shame. And again, I understand it, you know, and I would encounter it also teaching, you know, and try to get people out of that particular Mm. funk if I could. Also, one other way to look at it, too, is there are so many women who find it very hard to have children because they're too poor. They don't have access to daycare. And, you know, the rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality amongst African-American women in this country are much higher than for white women across classes. It's an outrage. So I think it's also if you turn the narrative around, we need to help people. Part of the reproductive justice movement line is that people should be able to not have children if they don't want to have children, but they should be able to have children in a safe world, you know, in an environmentally uh, safe world as well, and with social supports, right? And, you know, I think the reproductive justice framework might help some of these people get out of this particular funk. When you have children, you really focus on how to build that community, how to build that world. You want your children to live in a better world. So in a way, it's an impetus toward positive political and community action, or can be, right? as opposed to, oh, God, I'm raising them in this nightmare world. And it's as if, also, people haven't raised children in nightmarish conditions over the course of human history, right? You're listening to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth. Today, I'm in conversation with Betsy Hartman, discussing the dangers of blaming the planet's ills on overpopulation. In 1968, the American biologists Paul and Anne Ehrlich published The Population Bomb, an apocalyptic vision of the future in a world where population was left unchecked. It brought ideas about overpopulation to a mass audience and continues to be read and to be influential to this day. I asked Betsy about how that book came about. In the kind of post-World War II period, especially starting the 50s, but really starting in earnest in the 60s. You have major U.S. foundations, like the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and and then the U.S. government supporting population control programs, mainly as a means to stave off communist and revolutionary movements and to the demographic transition, this idea that once living standards rise, people tend to have smaller families, which is generally true, um, that we needed to expedite people. In the, they changed the demographic transition to mean that these poor people in the third world are having too many babies and they are preventing development from taking place and develop. We need development. You know, we need Western development to stave off um, communism. So therefore, we need to, you know, get these population control programs in place in order to have the kind of Western development in these countries that will mean that they don't go over to the communist bloc. So there was that going on. And then you had environmentalists starting to come in saying overpopulation. Of course, this was a period of rapid population growth um, in the U.S. as well as around the world. And there's already a eugenic strand in American environmentalism, and I think in lots of European environmentalism, uh, beginning of the 20th century, that nature conservationists were often eugenicist um, into racial purity, as well as kind of environmental and nature purity. So you have that stream in environmentalism already there, 
And then people like Ehrlich pick up the fear of this population bomb going off, even using the same imagery of the Cold War, right, of the bomb. And Ehrlich's a conservation biologist, and he sees overpopulation as the biggest problem in the world. And he, I think what he does, he's not the first to do this, but he really popularizes this apocalyptic vision of the world without population control, kind of using kind of very rudimentary Malthusian um, arithmetic where, you know, overpopulation of the planet, nature's going to bat last and do us in through mass famines. You know, he predicted all these mass famines that didn't happen, and um, but just painted the gloomiest picture and that we just have to get we have to send helicopters if necessary to India to help them sterilize people and on and on and on. And he, you know, he wrote this book. He got the support of the Sierra Club, I believe, at that time. And there was also a lot of money from this guy. Um, United States, you really have to look at who funds things. Sure, that's true everywhere, right? But this Dixie Cup magnate Hugh Moore threw money into this whole population bomb scare. And uh, I think he threw money behind getting Ehrlich's ideas out. And the book took off and uh, it had a widespread appeal, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, write, you write about how on the, these college campuses that you were part of at the time, suddenly these anti-Vietnam war demos in the space of a short amount of months changed from people that were campaigning against the war to people that were campaigning against global population. Yeah, that first Earth Day was, you know, intervened in by this humor character to get the pop- more attention to population. But I think for those of us who were, you know, in the anti-war movement, and also those of us who were concerned about imperialism more generally and, and uh, development issues and civil rights issues, Ehrlich's ideas didn't really take off, right? So I wouldn't say he affected everybody, but they became more commonplace. And the media loved it, right? I mean, he was on talk shows all the time. The United States has a particular apocalyptic predisposition and these kinds of people love to be scared and titillated by doomsday scenarios that are going to happen. And the media makes them even more so. Not many people are probably going to have heard of his book anymore, but it's such a common sentiment that people are bad and people are bad for nature. And we are a kind of scourge on the planet. In, In some ways, that's, as you say, this kind of looking at the other and, and the global south, but there's also this middle-class environmental personal guilt that people hold about their own actions. And th- that's actually an incredibly pervasive idea. And, and it's interesting to contrast that with, say, an anti-war movement or an anti-imperialist movement that tries to address power structures and imbalances is the actual reasons why people are a scourge on the planet is because certain people and certain power structures push the planet towards a certain place. But even even environmentalism that grew more out of the anti-war and, you know, left at that point in time, you know, I'm talking about 60s, early 70s, tended to have more like anti-chemical industry, um, anti-bomb, anti-pollution. And, um, you know, there was this um, biologist named Barry Commoner who was very progressive on these issues, right? And he saw also that the rise in pollution in the United States was due to industrial packaging and transport and a new way of production, really, and, and consumption and not due to the number of people. And he took on Ehrlich very strongly, and he had very progressive politics, but 
nobody paid as much attention to him because he actually explained things, right? It had cogent arguments. I'd, I'd say the environmental movement today is still laboring under those two very different ideas. If he starts a population bomb, doesn't he, with, with driving through uh, an Indian city and, and it like this vision of the rest of the world and where we, we're all heading to this clogged, horrendous slum if we don't watch out and don't heed his words. It's already been inherently racist. And just that idea of kind of swarms of humanity taking over. And then the other side, which I think is almost been playing catch up and still playing catch up, is, is as you say, kind of addressing industry and, and addressing the military and, and addressing the actual causes of the pollution rather than the consumers of those industries. Absolutely. And when Ehrlich wrote that thing about those taxis and car, you know, getting out of a train station in Delhi, I think, or getting out of the airport in Delhi. And uh, uh, I knew an Indian physicist who was working a lot on nuclear radiation issues, both in nuclear power and bombs. And he said, you know, Ehrlich really got it wrong. The real problem was the cars, not the people. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the cars feeling diesel. Right. Know, yeah, I, I just love that line. But uh, yeah, no, it, it, it really took over liberal, the liberal environmental imagination in many ways. And again, um, you know, I don't want to get it to seem like a conspiracy theorist, but there was a lot of money behind this. A lot, a lot, a lot of money, both in terms of finance and population control focus, actual programs, but also in terms of boarding views like Ehrlich's. And again, some of the population groups got into producing um, materials for schools and and getting that those materials into schools, so those ideas took off. And um, and as you say, environmental groups, uh, mainstream environmental groups, even liberal to left ones, have had this legacy of that kind of thinking. What's um, promising to me is that many of them are, or some of them at least, are starting to rethink that um, legacy, acknowledge that legacy and rethink their role, that finally the environmental, mainstream environmental movement is waking up more to these things. Yeah. So let's hope. Let's hope. Because I think it's going to be tough with climate change producing, you know, I mean, emergencies and disasters. It's going to be a real challenge for environmental movements to keep away from doomsday thinking. Trouble is when you start that doomsday thinking, it leads you down a road where those images and understandings that are so much of our stock of our culture reemerge, even if we don't, even if we know they're kind of wrong, they take over. So it's going to take a lot of reflection, I think, and, and work for people not to be swept up in that. I'm interested how you kind of counter those population arguments on, on a purely sort of quite a mathematical assumption, right? It's, well, we have a finite planet, we have more people, people have children, people have more than two children. How do you counter those arguments? Uh, well, first of all, you know, to use just, just to show how, you know, demographic dynamics have shifted over time and actually we're approaching a world of where families are having two children, some places where people continue to have more children, but those are usually in places with high infant and child mortality where people don't have social security systems. And, you know, women's employment and literacy certainly is linked to you know, having fewer children. But in general, people are having fewer children. They live in a more industrialized world. They live in cities. They don't need children to labor on the farm necessarily. Or, I mean, you know, sometimes people have fewer children because it's just really hard to have children because there's no social support. So it's not always like a great thing that people are having fewer children. But we are converging on a world where 
probably average family size would be around two, right? So, and then you have to teach people that about demographic momentum, that there's this, because so many in especially countries, certain countries of the global South have a high percentage of young people in their population of reproductive age. So there's going to be this period where absolute population numbers continue to go up, even though people are having fewer children, because more people are having children. But that age distribution will change over time. And as we're seeing in um, many, many countries, you're seeing a higher percentage of older people in the population now. And in fact, the irony is there's now a lot of concern about there are too many old people. We're the new population bomb, older people, putting depression burdens uh, on the economy and stuff like that. So in a certain way, they're always looking for who is the overpopulation of du jour, you know? So I like to teach about demographic dynamics, demographic transitions, the experience of different countries, and then also the history of policy, just to see where these ideas came from, and also the colonial roots of the idea that too many people on a given piece of land, you know, automatically leads to land degradation. You know, there's just been great work done showing that that's not always the case, and um, it really depends on agricultural techniques and society, you know, social arrangements, and you can actually have improvements in environmental outcomes. And I would say the thing that would really change people's minds the most was seeing the impact of population control programs like forced sterilization campaigns. And there's some great movies and books and things out there to really see what is the human impact of this ideology and also its manifestation in far right circles, like in eco-fascism, how it can lead to, to very problematic outcomes, not just in terms of kind of mainstream policy, but on the far right as well. So, and then finally, I would say, is just to show how birth control and abortion services can be combined in gender sensitive ways in a good quality healthcare system that really serves the needs of all people. Um, that equity is absolutely essential. Primary health care is absolutely essential. And reproductive health care for men, women, and people of all genders should be, you know, an intrinsic part of primary health care. So what does good quality family planning really look like? That is part of, again, this larger reproductive justice paradigm and also uh, attention to primary health care. And I, I think at least speaking from somebody, from uh, someone from the States, the convergence of reproductive justice and environmental justice, both in terms of actual activists and activism and also theoretically, has been really transformational. And now climate justice. So climate justice, environmental justice, reproductive justice, putting them together is such a much more positive and justice-oriented, equity-oriented framework. And uh, I think people get excited about that. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Betsy Hartman. Do you annoy a lot of environmentalists? Do people find you not apocalyptic enough or too, yeah, too positive in your thinking? Oh, I used to annoy a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I annoyed the population people a lot and Paul Ehrlich hated me and, you know, I think, and I would often have fight, you know, I often at dinner parties, I wouldn't tell people what I did. You know, if I didn't know, you know, they were close friends or what, because I, I just didn't want to get in a fight at a dinner party. I remember one time 
I like I was this woman. I was talking to this woman, and I bravely told her what I did, and she and she says, "Oh, I'm so glad you do that. I used to believe all that stuff, and I don't anymore." And I thought, "Yay!" You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I I'd say, just in the last few years, things have got better. You know, for me, the critiques of Malthusianism and the identification of Malth, partly because the far right has picked up these Malthusian ideas. I mean, they always have, but. But it, it's a strong strand now, and, and I mean, horrifically, with the mass murders, you know, in New Zealand and in Texas, um, people are waking up to how this ideology can be used by the far right as well. But I think they're just becoming more critical. And um, we, years ago, I was part of a group called the Committee on Women, Population, and the Environment, and we would have these dialogues with mainstream women from mainstream environmental group. We'd, we'd have a moderator. <laughs> we had some good discussion. We were all in favor of women having access to good quality birth control services. That's where we were starting, but they were more Malthusian in their analysis of the role of population growth. So we would have these dialogues and then nothing much would happen, but we did try to reach out and they tried to reach out to us, but I'm really feeling now that um, having a critical attitude on Malthusianism and population issues and seeing the kind of how they come out of a deep history of racism and imperialism, all of a sudden this seems to be more accepted. And I don't feel like hopefully people won't be quite so angry anymore with me anymore. (laughs) What's brought about that change, do you think? Well, I think partly, more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement has made a big, tremendous difference in the United States and, and bringing up those legacies, right? And and also, you know, the move to take down Confederate monuments and stuff like that. People are also seeing those kinds of, um, the Sierra Club, uh, you know, had a, I think the director had a very good piece on the, how we need to take down our own monuments, you know, like John Muir is the icon of, of the conservation movement. So that I also think, and you know, this is maybe, I don't know, touting the role of education too much, but I do feel that many of us who grew up in more radical times in the late 60s and early 70s and did develop critiques of these ideas uh, and of Malthusianism and were politically active, a lot of people then went into the academy to teach. And I think there's, there's just many more students in colleges uh, across the country who were exposed to critiques. I'm interested to talk about how this population idea plays out sort of currently as well. And I think there's a few different places where, where, where it seems to sort of play into ideas. I was struck when you were talking about this idea of scarcity and, and carrying capacity. A lot of the arguments now that the Conservative Party here use for austerity uh, seem to play into that, that actually, well, there's just not enough to go around anymore. You know, we need to make some hard choices here because there's really not enough to go around. And then you couple that with this idea of the migrant and speaking from a kind of European perspective, the sort of 2015, but kind of an ongoing arrival of, of migrants into Europe, although very overblown in terms of how migration happens worldwide. But there's a real kind of European fear at the moment, what gets talked about as the great replacement and, and white people becoming a minority in Europe. And, and, and they feel kind of other iterations of these Malthusian, neo, neo-Malthusian ideas of population. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, in one way, that phenomenon may be also helping to explain why more kind of mainstream liberals are starting to steer away from some of these arguments because they see them deployed in such ways. 
So um, thinking back to, you know, to the Trump administration, he was so outrageous and so racist and um, against immigrants that I think it was also a wake up call to to many liberals. Please need to remain vigilant on, you know, how these Malthusian ideas affect mainstream environmentalism um, and also continue on. to impact population policies in programs in many places in the world. One of the arguments that needs to be used with liberal environmentalists or even left environmentalists is if you embrace these Malthusian ideas, in a way, it makes a bridge to the far right. The far right would like nothing better than you to be using these Malthusian ideas. And it's a way for them, you know, kind of normalizes their ideas in a way overpopulation just becomes this kind of umbrella under which many people can fit. And, uh, and they're perfectly aware of this. In fact, you know, there was a long movement here in the United States, the Tanton Network of Anti-Immigration Groups that used green arguments against immigrants. We call it the greening of hate. So they've been doing it strategically for a long time to try to actually um, reach out and um, to liberal environmentalists and get them into the anti-immigration movement. Very dangerous. So I think migration is the new touchstone here. And sometimes it's not pure Malthusian ideas, but it's ideas about overpopulation or population. Um, Colleagues of mine call populationism. That, for example, overpopulation in the European case, refers to um, overpopulation of migrants or, or uh, people of color compared to white people, right? Same here in the United States, those kind of uh, racist arguments. So you can create overpopulations of people in many different ways. It doesn't have to be this kind of simple Malthusian food versus food and resources versus people, although that's still around quite a lot too. And I think, especially in the climate movement, people need to be very cautious because with the rise of the populist uh, and far right in Europe and in the United States, the uh, kind of green glossing of these anti-migration arguments is taking place within far right movements, you know, in the UK and France and Switzerland, Austria, all around. And I think as climate denial, per se, starts decreasing on the right, because it's pretty clear we're undergoing climate change, you're going to see more embrace of far-right climate politics and using these kinds of arguments. So I think the environmentalists, liberal and left environmentalists, have to be very cautious on how we see the relationship of climate and migration most scholars of climate-related migration like to call it climate-related migration because migration occurs usually for a constellation of reasons. And to just say it's due to climate change is problematic. And moreover, some studies suggest that most climate-related migration is likely to be within countries and across national borders. So to call people climate refugees, for example, from Central America coming into the U.S., or in 2015 to call the you know, mass migration uh, toward Europe as a kind of climate refugee movement, as some people did, as some environmentalists did, partly to grab attention, to draw attention to the plight of the migrants, ironically trying to do it for the, you know, to empathize with the migrants. But I think it's really a two-edged sword here. And most of that migration, uh, or a great part of it, was due to war, right? The Iraq war, the Syrian war, and kind of ignoring, you know, if you say it's due to climate, of course, then there were these arguments that 
the Syrian war was due to climate change. I mean, it's like naturalizing political, economic, and military developments in that way is, I think, very dangerous. And it also allows the far right, it gives them, gives them some more credence, you know, if the, if people on the liberal and left environmental, you know, in circles are, are talking about how, uh, oh my God, you know, all these climate refugees are going to come to our borders and we need to take care of them, they'd say, but they still say they're coming to our borders. And they still use it as an argument for why we need to take climate change seriously, because otherwise this is what's going to happen. Yes. And that really feeds into the far right fear fomenting about migration and the far right's attempts to do a green spin on migration. And again, framed as a kind of inevitability, regardless of whether drought was one of a myriad of factors that caused some sort of destabilization in Syria, that by no means means that the whole horrific chain of events that followed afterwards was inevitable. There were decisions taken by people in power to perpetrate atrocities and to say it was because of drought is is really just to wash your hands of the entire situation. Absolutely. And very worrying, you know, because there was a big move on to blame the Syrian war on drought and climate change. And, you know, then scholars um, in the UK, also a colleague of mine here named Omar Dahi, really took this on and did a whole critique of the Syrian war drought thesis and just showed how simplistic it was, you know. And uh, that people should have to do that because this Syrian war thing was being spread by, you know, academics and uh, people should know better. In a way, it's also a way for Western countries to spin these things as domestic problems due to climate change, uh, as opposed to their own role in the region. Um, you know, I, I worry about that a lot, actually. And um, and I see it, you know, the Biden administration's t- using some of these same arguments again. Um, and, and the idea that in times of scarcity also, that poor people ought to automatically fight with each other and resort to violence, as opposed to greater cooperation, which can happen. And they ultimately migrate uh, either to cities where they become terrorists or across you know, national borders where they threaten us. Those, that, those narratives are still, you can find them in recent, U.S. defense documents. I think you can probably find them in U.K. and NATO documents. And there are many reasons they're deploying these particular arguments. And one of which I would argue is that NATO and the U.S. anyway are very interested in moving in more to take over humanitarian assistance, using it kind of strategically. So also this becomes a way to build support for the militarization of humanitarian assistance. We're going to need a lot of humanitarian assistance in the years ahead, but I would prefer, you know, sometimes the military can be useful in terms of transport or whatever, but it's much better if it's under the purview of civilian agencies. I'm interested to talk a bit about that idea of apocalypse, because that seems to be something that you really focus on. And I think that's something that anyone who works in climate change activism will be very familiar with it. It's quite a safe place in a way, the apocalyptic future. It's quite seductive, it's quite comforting almost in a perverse way. What is that? 
Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one thing you can go to the movies and see it, or you used to be able to go to the movies and see it, uh, you know, played before your eyes all the time. I think it's a deep disposition, you know, and I speak more as somebody in the United States, but, and I always found Europeans not to be quite as apocalyptic as Americans, although that may be changing, you know, but because in a way our early Puritan settlements in the United States, the whole idea that we were this country, you know, city on the hill that we were going to bring, that conditions in Europe were apocalyptic, but we were going to be this new city on the hill and beckoning, you know, gleam. And and that kind of set off apocalypse is both fear of doomsday, the end of the world, but it's also waiting the new millennium, right? So there's kind of a dark side and a bright side of apocalypticism. And I think that one reason it appeals to the left, because there's this millennial utopian outcome that which I would love to see, but I've gotten more jaded in my old age. <laughs> but uh, so, and then you have, you know, the history of the settlement of the United States is uh, one of violent extermination of peoples. We live in a country that is born in violence that continues its, you know, colonial drive to settle the homeland is also extremely violent. And so war becomes, I mean, this is one of the arguments in my book, war becomes, you know, the battle of Armageddon and we're living in a state of perpetual war. And then of course, with the war on terror, Cold War, war on terror, and the domestication of, uh, of war, um, the militarization of the police, we live in a very highly militarized and, and warmongering society. And I, I think the violence of apocalypse and Armageddon, you know, the idea that it's going to be this huge battle. I mean, I, I read the book of Revelation, you know, when I was started off this book, I don't have much religious background, I have to say. So I read it and I was just like appalled by the violence in it, you know, but there's a lot of natural violence in it too, violence against nature, not just against people. So it's like this very powerful view of just, real doom, but with a, you know, hopeful message that maybe the millennium will emerge from this. So I think living in such a a country that's really swept up in uh, war and violence, both external and internal, makes the Battle of Armageddon and that kind of apocalyptic imagery more acceptable or, or seductive, I should say seductive. Um, and certainly the media and, uh, you know, the entertainment complex really likes to play on those ideas as well. So that's one root of it. And also this dual is coming out of kind of Christianity, this um, certain kind of Christianity, this dualism between good and evil and binaries. You're either one thing or either the other thing and kind of really dualistic thinking. And one thing I learned by doing this book is the power of the Jeremiad, which I don't know if it's so much the case in in Europe or not. But you see, you know, in Puritan sermon making, they always they would often say, "We've got to be the promised land. America is like the city on the hill, right?" But we are sinning, and that's why you know we're having wars with the Indians or bad things are happening to us or the crops are failing. It's because we're sinners and we need to redeem ourselves in the eyes of the Lord, come together again to rebuild our religious community, and then everything will be right again, right? So redemption, 
Um, but redemption is often based, you know, on kind of exterminating the other. But that kind of Jeremiah, it can be used for good or ill. I mean, you know, you know Martin Luther King used Jeremiah's and Barack Obama used Jeremiah's, but they, they lock um, Americans into kind of an American exceptionalism, even if they're, you know, used for better political reasons. They encourage American exceptionalism. And I think American exception, you can't distance apocalypticism at least its forms in the United States, from American exceptionalism. And apocalypticism actually enhances American exceptionalism. And that's one reason I think we really need to get over it, because, again, there's also this millennial promise, too, that we we can be perfect, a perfect union, you know? And uh, I think a lot of people on the left, too, myself included, one reason I wrote this book is I was very millennial in my youth Really, we're going to build the perfect socialist society and everything's going to be okay, you know? And, and uh, we're going to come out of this nuclear nightmare and environmental nightmare and, you know, civil rights nightmare. We're going to build the perfect society. And again, U.S. can be like an example to the world, right? So those are some of the underlying reasons for apocalyptic thinking. But I think Malthusianism really has kept it alive too, you know? And in the environmental movement, especially Malthusian, plays plays a key role in um, keeping apocalyptic thought alive. That's really interesting to put those two ideas back to back. I suppose the apocalypse is often happening to other people, isn't it? And it's often and it's often the bed to build that better world upon as well. Whether that's the kind of Hollywood sort of societies, small societies thriving from the ashes, or whether it's an American exceptionalism sort of on a global scale it's they go hand in hand in that way when I hear these apocalyptic scenarios in in England it generally seems to be happening to other people you know there's this kind of internalized guilt as well but but there's there's never quite a sense of the individuals that are speaking about it being caught up in it yeah no excellent point I don't know if you've ever read Mike Davis's chapter on kind of end of the world science fiction writing in um I think it's in um ecology of fear but he talk, talks about how these movies where entire populations, usually of poor, dark people in cities, right, are annihilated, you know, just gives people a certain satisfaction, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, and how based on a lot of deeply held racism, you know, often unconscious racism that people watch these things. But it's those people over there who suffer the most and kind of a slum porn, too. And I remember I, eight years ago or so, I started going to see some of these dystopian uh, movies about climate change and stuff. And I just, I mean, I couldn't bear it. But one of the things I noticed was really it was slum porn. And, uh, and of course, the people who are really affected don't do anything except violence to organize themselves to withstand these problems, right? I mean, they don't present people as like having meetings to sort out what to do to, you know, make sure that kids have enough to eat. And, you know, it's like, it's always just, you know, violent hordes or people are being trampled or killing each other. I mean, it's the, the violence is just intense. It's not perfect. Again, there's not some millennial thing that everybody's wonderful in disasters, but I mean, that book by Rebecca Sohn that really talks about how people do tend to cooperate in times of disaster and even across class, but it's often the powers that be and the forces of law and order that come in and create the, the, the chaos, you know. You've been listening to Spoken Earth. 
edited and produced by Uli Matson, music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Sharat. It's a Lacuna podcast, and we'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>